I'm for Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator of the contemporary scene. Here's Gene. Okay, all right. Now, uh, you know, I'll tell you, before we go any further, I have to say that uh, that uh, life is getting, uh, um, I suppose you can call it complex. Have you ever had the situation in your life where every time you turn around, you look around, see, and you see things that have symbolic meaning to you? Now, many people never say this. I mean, you know, the, the average walking around guy has trouble even reading his own name if it's written out in longhand. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, no, the other day, I tell you, symbolic meaning, every every place you look, there's traps for you. Um, oh, yeah, and, and they're, they're, they're clever. Like the other day, I come in the bank, see. Now, uh, you know those little slips they got in the bank? I'm just going to warn you, there's a new racket going around, gang. No, there's a new one. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm on the hand here to warn you of it. Uh, you walk in to the bank, and you know those little slips where you're, you make a deposit in your checking account, and it has all these little things, those checks, cash, and all that stuff, see? And then down at the bottom, it says your account number, and you're supposed to write in your number, you know, 126SJ714LDQ or something, see? Right? Well, you know that the machine the um, that looks at those things, you know, it's a machine that reads it. It isn't a person that reads those things. Yes, it is a machine. So that's why you have to put it in those boxes. See, this machine reads this number. It does not read your name. So when you write your name down, you know, Charlie Gutstop, uh, 2222 17 South Garbage Street, you know, you write it down. That doesn't mean a damn thing because the machine doesn't read that. It reads the number, okay? Well, the other day, I came into the bank, see, and uh, and there is, you know, they they have these these desks where they have these little slots under the desk there where they have deposit slips and stuff. So I look down there and I'm looking around and I see there's this pile of little deposit slips that say for the checking account, see, they're all nice and clean. So I take one out and I write down all the stuff I'm going to deposit in there and uh, I look at it. It's all filled out. And so I walk over to the teller and I give it to the teller and the teller is... Uh, taking the slip scene she's writing this all down and uh, all of a sudden she says oh she said uh, hmm very interesting I said uh, oh is it what she said uh, oh she says you're using I see you're using uh, your printed uh, deposit slips uh, from your from your chair I said I don't have any pr- what do you mean and she showed me the deposit that on the bottom you know where it says your number somebody else's number was already printed there <laughs> In other words, some guy had brought a bunch of deposit slips in with his number and just put them in the slot. Now you're getting it, so that you, you know you just fill this thing out. You don't, for, you know, you look down there and you see all those numbers printed, and you kind of accept it. Well, that would mean that if you came in there with uh, you know four thousand dollars, you're depositing it in somebody else's account. Now I don't know how many this guy got away with, but I I said to the girl, she said, "Where'd you get this?" And uh, I said, "Well, it was over there in that." slot there at the bottom of the desk. She says, you mean it's over there in the desk? I said, yeah. So at that point, a guard rushes over and he pulls out about 25 of them that were in there, all neatly mixed in <laughs> with the others. I thought, oh, wow. You know, so, and I can just imagine, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, most people never really take their checking account and seriously balance it and all that. Well, now, the, those of you who do would have a hell of a time proving that you gave them the money doesn't make any difference. 
No, that slip doesn't... You could fill out all the slips you want. What does that prove? That doesn't prove anything. The point is that, that, that uh, when, you, <laughs> when you go in there, you better look very carefully at those slips. And, uh, and a very, you know, I thought that was a really clever little gimmick. <laughs> now, now, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I wonder if there's a guy who, you know, it would be simple to do, you know. When you, when you, order, when you order checks, you know, you order checks, you get new checks, right? Well, you also get a bunch of these little slips, deposit slips. With your number printed on the bottom. No, no, no name. No, they don't put your name on it because uh, they, how can they print the, the, the? They don't know your name. Your check, my check, doesn't have my name on it. It just it, it, you just get a bunch of deposit slips with your number printed on the bottom. Now, uh, what's to prevent? You know, how, how could you say it's illegal? What's to prevent you from taking a whole bunch of those slips and just sticking them in one of those desks? And see what comes up. <laughs> you know, a couple of days later, you call up and say, Hey, uh, how's my checking account? Guy says, Wow, you really must have hit the jackpot. Holy God, $2,427,918 in two days. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> well, then you do. You write a very quick check and take off for Lima, Peru. But, uh, and there's nothing wrong with it, you know. It's like, it's like uh, well, I had a thing happen to me one time. I'm a kid, see? And uh, when I first discovered that, that honesty is not always the best policy, it really isn't. Uh, and I, I'd like to tell everybody listening it is, but it really doesn't work out that way. Uh, oh, yes, honesty has gotten more than one guy to really a, a hell of a lot of trouble. But uh, also naivete is not the best policy either. So uh, I'm, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm working at the steel mill, and, uh, of course, this is a vast organization. Twenty-seven million thousand guys are working there. In fact, uh, the mill that I was working at was so big, it had uh, three shifts a day. You know, it worked 24 hours. All steel mills do, most of them anyway. And uh, there were something like 18,000 guys on each shift. So figure it out. Uh, 18,000, that's right. And that did not include all the regular office workers who worked their days all the time. I'm talking about 18,000 guys on one, thir one shift. So uh, this is a big organization. So, uh, And I, I was a mailboy. See, I ran around and I knew thousands and thousands of people in, uh, in the mill when you deliver mail. Mailboys, by the way, are not the same as a mailboy here. So don't confuse. Nothing to do with this. No, no. A mail deliverer in, in the steel mill, first of all, you're bonded, for starters. Secondly, it is a highly responsible job because the stuff that you're delivering often has a crucial time limit on it, like minutes. And so, uh, oh, this is a steel mill. It's uh, a lot of stuff that goes on in a steel mill has minute-by-minute uh, minute, uh, meaning. Oh, well, let's put it this way. All right, if, if there's a heat that is, uh, that is cooking... And that's a you know a hundred tons of steel cooking, and uh, and you're carrying the lab report from the latest reading out of that heat to the uh, to the number three open hearth. You damn well better get it there before they tap it. So so it's all it's all complex. And so I'm running around all day long delivering mail, and uh, everybody in the in the plant uh, when you when you're when you're a mail it takes you about uh, between six and eight months to even learn. The basic rudiments of a root in this mail. Oh, you have to know the, you have to know the the mill intimately, like the back of your hand. Now, most people working the steel mill only know one small part of it. Well, 
in, in, a, in a thing like a steel mill, for starters, a steel mill covers an area of, uh, oh, I'd say roughly uh, uh, possibly Manhattan and uh, Queens combined with uh, probably Trenton thrown in for good measure. Yes, that's right. That's why you don't have any heavy industry in this area. It takes a lot of real estate, and it and it covers miles. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, it was quite common for me to be on one part of the route, uh, a route. They had they had nine routes in the mill. I would be on one route, and you, you had to know all nine of them. That I would be on one route, and it would be very possible for me to to be on one point of my route and be roughly oh, fifteen miles away from another male boy who was on another route. It's that big. So <laughs> a steel mill is a big... Well, I guess apparently people don't... Oh, you did it. You, you moved in many ways. You used uh, trucks, uh, all kinds of techniques to deliver it uh, physically. But uh, one of the... Uh, I'll tell you, I had a... a speaking of, of the truck uh, that I delivered the mail in, I'll, have you ever had in your job uh, whatever your job is, the worst conceivable thing happened to you. Well, you think you have, but I mean the worst conceivable. It's like if you're a high-tension operator and you're up on the top of a... What would be the worst thing that could happen to a high-tension? Well, probably getting electrocuted, right? Uh, now, most people think they've had trouble in their job. Well, trouble in, in, a, in a thing like a steel mill is immense. Uh, you have no idea what kind of trouble. If you if you're thinking, you know, in terms of trouble, like uh, you got locked out of your office, or uh, you forgot to turn in the report, or you know, really, that kind of stuff is, is fun and games compared to what happens in a steel mill. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. Oh, listen, I I, uh, I remember the things that happened in the mill that uh, were, you know, if they were publicized because they're kept within the mill. Uh, they're they're boo-boos of an immense nature. Now, generally, it's breakdown of equipment that does it. Uh, I've seen, uh, for example, I, I saw a, a a train one time. It's funny funny sight. It was like it was like out of a Buster Keaton silent comedy. I was running along in the mill one day, and uh, and of course the mill, all big big industry, including the automotive industry, is interlaced with internal railroad tracks well of course what do you think they make there when you're when you're when you're when you're carrying 400,000 tons of metal what do you do do you think you put it in a pickup truck you mean this surprises you oh I'm, I'm amazed at the innocence that people have uh, no I really am I'm, I'm continually amazed at the at the amount of innocence that a, the average person has about his daily the, the life of the 20th century I don't know whether, when you hear the word steel mill, what do you think people do in a steel mill? Well, first of all, you know one thing they do. They make steel, right? Well, that means that there are immense forces involved. At uh, great furnaces, yes, but uh, what, what, for example, how do they get the ore into that furnace? No, shovel. Are you kidding? Shovel. This is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons. You think three guys stand there with a shovel? <laughs> it's an immense operation, and, and it takes it takes. Uh, do you know that that the largest trackage, private trackage, of diesel tracks, so standard locomotive tracks, just like railroad, the regular railroads, in other words, standard gauge tracks, are found within one steel mill 
in America, larger than the railroads involved that you see. In other words, there's thousands of miles of track within many a mill, and they enter, they, they intercut and interchange all the various departments of a mill, and so every time you turn around, there's a diesel locomotive going by you. Uh, usually with a long line of flatbed cars, special steel flatbed cars attached to it, with giant rolls of of uh, thousands of tons of black plate. That's great. That's the kind of stuff they make stoves out of. For example, that's called black plate. Great coils of steel, uh, often dripping with oil or red hot, depending on what mill they're coming out of, or uh, all kinds of things like that are being moved around. Well, one day I'm walking along, seeing I'm up ahead. I see this 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 uh, locomotive is pushing a bunch of cars, and these are freight cars. Now, these freight cars have con- they contain uh, actually they were uh, they were ore cars. They look like uh, the kind of cars you see that have an open top that they put coal in and stuff. Well, all right, they're, they're pushing a whole line of these, see, and so they push this line, and the guy unhooks his train, his his uh, his uh, diesel off of it, and I see him rolling. They're rolling along. See, they're rolling, and uh, they're supposed to roll. So he's pushed it down there. And uh, I see there's a couple of train guys up in the front, and uh, they're they're hanging on the front car, and they're going to stop it. See when they get to where they want to go. So they're rolling along, they're rolling and rolling. It's clicking away, going. Away. You know, this is a tremendous force. After all, you get about 15 freight cars filled with, uh, say, uh, coke. Uh, you got thousands and thousands of tons, and that's a lot of force moving, right? So it's just rolling along free, no no engine. And I see these guys up in the front there, and they come along, and they're 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 coming up to a big building. See, there's a great big building that's about oh maybe 18 stories high, roughly. It's a great big long shed, see. And uh, they're riding up, and the tracks go right into it. You got to understand. And so they're riding up to this thing, and all of a sudden I hear a lot of hollering, just faint from the distance. I hear this hollering, and I see these guys are frantically trying to stop this thing, and it ain't going to stop. The brakes are gone. Well, that's no joke. I'll tell you <laughs> when you're when you're when you had about ten cars of, of uh, coke, and this thing is moving. It's going about twenty miles an hour. Well, it hit that door. That door was a big steel door that was about uh, oh, it must have been four stories high. Hit that door. I mean, it was fantastic. You just hear this, and the door swings back up, and I saw the whole line of freight train, freight, freight cars go right into this building, disappear completely. And I can hear a lot of yelling and and and, and continuous thunder from inside this place. Just boom, kaboom, boom, crash, thump, boom. And finally, it seemed like after maybe an hour and a half, it died out. And then from all points of the compass, I could hear sirens coming out. Well, what happened? I wasn't allowed in. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, when, when there's a big catastrophe, they don't say, Hey, fellas, come on over, look what happened here. No, no, all I know is that I what I saw, and uh, I don't know how many guys got killed in that one, but, uh, well, uh, you, you die like flies in those big accidents. But the thing, boy, what a scene that was. Okay, now, now you want to really hear... Uh, uh, what what can happen when when something really blows up in your face? I'm talking about uh, uh, on your job. You know the worst possible thing that could happen to you on your job. And I I say that it's a lucky thing that it did happen to me at the time that it did. I was a cool seventeen, 
so uh, that's a good time to have a trauma occur to you because you'll never forget it. If it happens to you when you're 107 years old, you just figure, well, what the hell, that's one of those things. But if you're 17 and it happens, it becomes a rule of thumb. In short, it's, uh, it's good for a person to experience extreme difficulty early in life. Oh, yes, I believe firmly that is. Because, <laughs> because if you, if you, because life is the way life is. I'm talking about life, not just any one life, but life in general. The further you go into life without experiencing any problems, the more apt you are to go out of a window the first time the slightest thing happens to you. Okay? You understand the reasoning behind this. All right. And a lot of people spend most of their lives carefully guarding themselves against any possibility of trouble. Well, that's impossible. Because trouble will. <laughs> and, and uh, in other words, it's, uh, there's no way to ensure. Life is, in fact, uh, there's an old Oriental, uh, not a slogan, an old Oriental phrase. And I have to, I, I guess I'm more Oriental than most of my friends are, that deals with karma. You know what karma is, okay? Do you really know what it is? There's the problem. Uh, karma is not quite fate, although that's close. You know, the word fate doesn't enter much American discussions because we like to think that we can control everything that happens to us. This is why, by the way, we've gotten into many international problems. Americans tend to believe that if something blows up any place in the world, the first thing we say is, where have we failed? Which is stupid. <laughs> that is not understanding <laughs> life at all when you feel this. And, and, and so we, we, really, we really believe that anything can be controlled, and particularly by technology. There is a belief that technology ultimately will be able to make everybody live forever happy. Well... We are now experiencing the first detrimental effects of that. Oh, no, you don't think so, huh? Well, do you notice that they have little things like uh, air pollution uh, reports at the end of every weather report? They didn't have that in 1812, you know. Uh, and In other words, technology has brought along with it other problems which uh, they, don't, they didn't even know about 100 years ago. And that doesn't mean that they were uh, happier. It just means that they were unhappy about different things. So life will always be pretty much the same. A thousand years from now, whatever man fears, we don't understand it now. But uh, it will be as equal fear as the fear of now, whatever you fear. Well, if you learn this early enough, life, you can deal with this in a certain amount of equanimity. You can, you can, you know, you can walk along and... Uh, uh, if you expect problems, when they happen, you're not confused. Generally, you deal with them. But the person who does not expect problems has trouble dealing with them when they happen because he's completely thrown off his, his, uh, his rocker by problems. But anyway, I had, I had the ultimate happen to me very early in my work. I'm a kid, see, and I'm working in this uh, this big mail room. Now, a mail room in a steel mill is not like the mail room in your office. This is a big, it's a big department. In fact, it, in, it, it involved uh, probably, let's see, at one point, uh, I'd say roughly 
200 employees because the, 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 actually it's the communications department of a mill. See, the, the word mail boy confuses you. You probably think it's like an office boy, but it has not, nothing to do with it. In fact, he is, uh, he's part of the executive group, generally an executive trainee, and incidentally a high-ranking person in the steel mill in the, in the world. Of course, he, he, he has to learn something that the others never learn. He has to know the mill intimately. He's almost like a pilot on a ship. In other words, uh, if a pilot picks up the ship coming into the harbor, he knows the harbor intimately. And uh, this is the way with a, with a male boy. A male boy knew, of course, that, that misnomer. It's not a male boy. We were, we were communication uh, people there, what we did. Well, anyway, we had our own trucks. We had a fleet. We had, we had trucks. Now these trucks were were, uh, were were Chevy GMC panel trucks. They were they were like uh, inside the cab was all fitted up with uh, with the mail slots. So that as you were driving the truck, other guys would be in the back sorting mail as you go from one part of the mill to the next. They were sorting mail that you were that had just picked up because all this was interdepartmental mail, and there were thousands and thousands of pieces of it, all kinds of complex reports and stuff that were continually passing like a great river between the parts of the mill. Well, one day, we, <laughs> we had these beautiful trucks, and they were specially sprung, very expensive trucks. They weren't just trucks off the floor because they had to drive on this uh, rough terrain over tracks and stuff in the steel mill. They had special rough, uh, heavy-duty tires and springs. And so one day, Mr. Moss, who was my boss, M double A S. It was he was an he was an old Dutchman, Moss, Moss, and he always wore a hat, Moss. And uh, Mr. Moss one day said, uh, Shepherd, he said, I have a real treat for you. I said, Treat? He says, Yep. He says, We have just gotten a delivery today of a brand new truck. How would you like to take that truck out to the coal strip today? He said, I want you to take it out to the coal strip. And I want you to get it numbered. Now, out at the coal strip, they had a sign plant where you drove in, you know, and they have these big signs on the side of the truck that says Inland Steel, truck number 17, mail department. It was in gold leaf they put this on. And this was an elegant dark blue truck, which was the basic company logo color. It was a dark royal blue. So I said, gee, a brand new truck. And he said, yep. He says, here you are. And this was a high honor, a signal honor. So I take, I take the keys, he has the keys, and I go out uh, back around to the shipping department and back in the, in the dock there, and here is this gorgeous new truck sitting there. It was fantastic, beautiful. I mean, it has two-way radio in it, and it's a dark, rich blue color, brand new. Brand spanking new, it had about two miles on it. So I get in the front seat of this thing, and I turn it on. Now, uh, 17, you know, I was really into cars. Now, this is something uh, not too many girls experienced, but I was into cars, into cars. Now, that, that isn't the same as, gee, I wish I had a car. I was into cars, right? So, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got into the front seat of this GMC. It was a gorgeous truck. See? So I, I drove it out in the sunlight, and the sun is beating down on the hood. And, uh, you know, I put the window down, and you could smell the new upholstery, and I drive down past the 14-inch shipping mill. I turned past the 100-inch mill, the big plate mill, and a couple of guys are hollering, hey, boy, man, look at a great truck. And I drive past the tin mill. 
Now, I'm on my way to the cold strip. Now, I know the mill like the back of my hand. And there are roads, you see, to connect all these mills. Well, I, I happen to know that there was a, a, a shortcut between the 40-inch soaking pit and the rail mill. It had to be a, a real intimate of the mill to know this. So I drive down next to the 40-inch the soaking pits, and there's that passageway. See, it had a, had a track going right down the middle of it. See, so I turn left and I cut through. I'm going to cut through this this uh, shortcut I knew, which would save like a five-mile trip, by the way, all the way out around this, this great big mill. So I cut down this through. Just as I get deeply into it, I'm about halfway through this passage, suddenly, right around the corner up ahead of me, comes this diesel locomotive coming right at me. Ding, 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 ding. And I, I'm, I'm in a place that's no wider than probably uh, a total ten feet wide. I mean, and here he comes right at me. Oh, my God. I slam on the brake. I put it in reverse, and I start to back up. Well, I wasn't going to make it. I could see it. I was not simply going to make it. He was coming along, and I'm backing up. It's a brand-new truck. It has a governor on it. And I blew the horn, see? And the horn goes, wah, like that. I see the guy's head come out of the window, and he throws everything he got. You know, he's putting on the brakes. The thing goes, and it just hit the front of the truck, and it caught me between the wall of the building to my right. And here I am, the train is coming to my left, and it just caught these... There I was. And I'm telling you, that train made that truck instantly. It went from truck width to about three and a half feet wide. And I was locked in the truck and couldn't get out. On my left, where I'm, you know, by the window, the driver's window, is the wall of the locomotive, a diesel locomotive, big orange, big orange locomotive. And on my right is the building, slammed up against that, and I sat in. The worst conceivable thing that could happen, happened. And I could hear these train men yelling and hollering. They finally backed the train out. The metal is grinding and the wheels are falling off the truck. The top is ripped all the way back. The metal opened up like a sardine can. They came and they pulled the door open and I fell out. <laughs> the guy, the, the locomotive driver says, What the hell were you trying to do? I said, He said, Didn't you see the sign? He says, Do not enter. Only railroad only railroad locomotives are allowed in this place. What the hell are you doing? I oh, I don't know. It's a shortcut. And I picked up a telephone and called Mr. Moss. I said, Mr. Moss, you know that new truck? He said, yeah, did you get the sign put on it? <laughs> I said, Mr. Moss, don't worry about the sign. Just don't worry about it. No, no, they don't fire people. You just don't understand the steel mill. Firing a steel worker is like impeaching a president. They have a union that makes any union you've ever seen look like greasy kid stuff. Firing isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Public humiliation is. You'll have to understand there's a big difference. Oh. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene.